So, as you have just heard from Solari, Pete's asked me to speak about Isaiah 35 this morning. Uh, what if I pray one more time, and then I'll tell you what I've figured out so far. Let's pray. Dear Father, we acknowledge your authority here again this morning, and we acknowledge that we need you, and we also look to you with confidence. We find ourselves in Christ by your mercy and through the power of the cross. And so, uh, though we are small and though we are flawed, we sit secure in your grace. Help us as we look at your word. We sometimes find Old Testament passages uh, a little bit harder to unravel and understand than some of our familiar New Testament passages. Help us as we look at Isaiah today, we pray, and uh, give some little bit of... uh, spiritual goodness to each person who's here. Amen. Well, uh, a little bit like maybe Melissa, or maybe more so than Melissa, I'm not much of a liturgical person either. My upbringing was very kind of low church, and so uh, I actually had to go and look at why Isaiah 35 was an Advent passage, Uh, and so I educated myself just one notch from where I was up to. It was interesting actually to see all of the cycles And so one of the things I wanted to understand was why Isaiah 35 is suitable for that purpose. And to understand how we can find the hope in that passage. So you would have seen when Solari read that, what a hopeful passage it is. Um, Why don't I, I'm going to click up and see if I can bring up my first slide. Shall I try that? It's there. It's Oh, so I don't get it. <laughs> All right. I'll use the eyes in the back of my head. Okay. That's nice. All right. Okay. So, desert flower. I thought that would be appropriate. So, when I read this passage, before I'm, when I'm going to preach on something, I've got to feel it, right? I, I, maybe uh, someone once said to me that my way of writing songs back when I thought I would try and write songs was romantic, capital R romantic, because I would, I'd only write them when I was inspired. And so a literary person up there in Queensland, she said, you're a capital R romantic. So I, I kind of preach that way as well. I have to feel the passage before I can really speak it. That's why I, can, I can't pull one out of the file. It's always got to be a fresh thing that I've learned. And... When I first approached this passage, I had a little bit of trouble feeling it. I don't know whether it has that effect for you. You can see how bright it is. You can see how joyful it is. You can see how wonderful it is. And you might be tempted to think, well, I don't feel that way. That doesn't seem to describe my life. I don't engage with that text at the moment. I can see why it's good. I can see why it's admirable. I can see why... Christians from the very first day of the church, you know, latched onto this along with other texts and saw it kind of really crystallising what they understood about Jesus. But does it describe how I feel about my life? No, not necessarily. Uh, Is all of the sorrow and sighing, is that all in the past for me? You know, can I say that sorrow and sighing has fled away? Has all my desert already turned to joy? Maybe you don't feel that way. And at first I sort of thought, how can I... There's a bit of a distance between me and what this passage is saying. I don't don't feel this way about life. Um, Am I supposed to? Is this passage becoming too idealistic for me? Is it it utopian? 
and, and something that I can't engage with anymore. Now, if I'm not finding a meeting of minds with a biblical text, that's a bit of a signal to me that I've got to work harder and look more and chase it down, wrestle with it. Every time I'm involved in this kind of ministry, I have to wrestle and wrestle and wrestle, and then a text comes clear for me. It's a big wrestle every time. Uh, I'm always tempted to say it's like giving birth to, to the message, but I'm not authorised to use that illustration because I don't really know what that's like. <laughs> so I want to talk about this text in relation to three different audiences, and hopefully this is going to be understandable to you, and I'm going to bring, up, bring it up little bit by little bit contextualise it in the time when it was probably first a message to an audience, the, the audience that was first in mind when this was written or spoken or both, and then bring it through to the audience of the uh, environment around Christ, the early church, the, the audience that Jesus was speaking to at first, and then speak about us as an audience of this as well. Oh, now this is great because now I have feedback. I think. Oh, look at that. I just got to go over my shoulder. All right. So the first audience I want to talk about is that of the Jewish exiles. Uh, Isaiah is one of these books that really takes a while to fathom. I've taught it a handful of times now as a discrete unit at college and also part of survey courses. And every time I go back and study it, I understand it a little bit better. And I think maybe by the time I'm really ancient, I'm going to feel like I have it well, um, but each time I go back, oh, oh, I get something fresh now, I get something fresh. So you hunt round in the second half of Isaiah. Well, let me back up. Let me give you a bit of a geography of Isaiah and then a little bit of a geography of Israel that's relevant to this text. There's only one visible break on the biggest of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, if you've ever gone looking into the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, they were just like finding Aladdin's cave, right? You know, this is kind of 1950s and they found little bits on the markets and then eventually they were able to excavate sort of the caves. And one of the best caves for finds of biblical scrolls was cave number one and the best scroll in the best cave was the great Isaiah scroll. It sometimes does tours, sometimes it's on display in Israel and when it's fully unrolled, it's... X number of metres long. It's long. I don't know exactly how long. It's really long. And it goes right from the start of the book right to the very end. And if you look at it, all it's really missing is that one edge has suffered some weathering and has kind of been weathered off. But three quarters, you know, eight-tenths of each page is just about right. And so it's the most legible, the most complete biblical scroll. It's the gem of the whole collection. There's only one physical break on the Great Isaiah Scroll. And it's between chapter 33 and chapter 34. It's the only unused space on the whole scroll. So despite the fact that you get a really dramatic change in tone at chapter 40 in Isaiah, uh, some scholars have gone back and gone, oh, so what happens if we look at it as a book of two halves? Does that make sense? And it does seem to in certain ways. So uh, the focus, the, the general setting that dominates the first half of the book up through chapter 33 is the situation of Isaiah's own day. It's the end of the 700s BC and just into the 600s, so they talk about him as an 8th century prophet. And a lot of the action that happens in there pre presumes that kind of historical setting. Uh, 
The main event is that the local empire, Assyria, comes storming through like a flood, says chapter 8, like a flood that reaches up to the neck and Judah just survives. And, and the head that's left sticking out is the city of Jerusalem because everything else is conquered by the Assyrians. They're staring death in the face as a nation. And then they have that miraculous deliverance. It's told in the story in chapters 36, 37. And right when they're staring death in the face, Isaiah the prophet announces deliverance. You have the mass deaths outside the wall and the Assyrians uh, end up turning on their heel and going back. That's the simplified version. But it's, um, it's the moment of being saved on the edge of the cliff for the nation of Judah and they never forget it. And it just colours the telling of Isaiah's whole story. As soon as you hit chapter 34, you've got an announcement to the nations. Hey, nations, listen up. Um, I've got something to say. And it's an announcement of judgment in the beginning of that chapter. And so uh, what is already a book that has an eye on the nations now is really kind of going international. And there's a, a matching kind of announcement at the top of chapter 41. There's a matching type of announcement at the top of chapter 49, so it seems to string together these blocks and be a set and, and make sense together. So chapter 34 is kind of on the darker side, it's judgment, and then chapter 35 seems to go with it and be the corresponding uh, announcement of salvation for God's people. And initially it's very historical, so most of chapter 34 is concerned with judgment on Edom, who took the opportunity of Babylon destroying Judah to kind of stab Judah in the back a little bit. In the, in the 500s BC. And then the flip side is initially quite contextualised in the needs of the Jewish people who are waiting to come out of exile. And so if you look at various points in the remaining half, in that second half, you see at different spots, oh, this is talking to the situation of Jews stuck in Babylon in exile in the 500s. Uh, I gave you one example there in the small font, Isaiah 64, 10 to 11, refers to Jerusalem being desolate and the temple being burned. So there were other times when Jerusalem was under pressure or attacked or part of its wall broken down, but there's only one time in the Old Testament storyline where Jerusalem is left uninhabited and desolate and the temple burned to the ground. There's only one time, and that's the Babylonian exile. So it's very clear... And this, you can see there's 6, 12, kind of 18 different points in the second half of the book that this is the group that is being addressed here. The group, they're in exile and wondering if they can ever be saved, wondering if God has any time for them anymore, wondering if the covenant is dead, the whole relationship, promises to David, that whole deal. Maybe that's all over. And the second half of the book says, wake up, get up, pull yourself together. Uh, God's not finished with you. Message of comfort and... Isaiah 48, 20, leave Babylon, pack up and leave Babylon, and you'll never guess who my saviour is. The word Messiah in Hebrew is only used once in the whole of the book of Isaiah. And who's it used for? Cyrus, the Persian emperor, the first verse of chapter 45. One of many surprises in the book, the word Messiah is used once of a foreign emperor. And a good deal of the rest of that chapter is dealing with an audience who's obviously saying, that's a rubbish prophetic message. Because <laughs> a number of succeeding verses say, who are you to question? You know, you're the clay and God's the potter. Who, who are you to question his way of saving you? So if his Messiah for right now is a foreign emperor, you're the clay, you can be quiet and let the potter do his work. 
So you can tell that there's some um, trouble processing the pr prophetic message there in Isaiah. So the first audience is waiting to be saved. It's a very historically grounded message. It's a long way back from us. Um, but you can tell that this message is to get them up and get them going and get them obeying and get them accepting what God is trying to do for them, bring them home. Uh, if you know your biblical history, do they ever make it back to Jerusalem? Give me a visual signal. Yes. Good. That's what you're trying to signal me? I can tell. Okay. So the first deliverance that really sort of starts to fulfill the um, outlines of this chapter is the return to Jerusalem. We have a few books in our Old Testament that help us with that, right? Ezra and Nehemiah are a little down the track, although Ezra starts off with that first return when Cyrus says, you can go back. And we have a couple of prophetic books, Haggai and Zechariah, that are very close to that time and trying to get the community to rebuild the temple. Right? So we do have a bit of focus in our Old Testament on that time. And in some ways, that's hope fulfilled. Some of the people do go home. Some of the people enjoy being back in the promised land. But life is hard and they can't get their king back. There's no Davidic king on the throne. And they are pretty soon clear that... All the prophetic promises, they're only having a partial enjoyment of those promises. They are partly restored. They kind of feel partly forgiven. They're still wondering if the presence of God is really with them. Now, what's interesting about this is when we get to our New Testament setting, people are still waiting for full restoration. And I reckon it's clearest in the Gospel of Luke. Let's see what I've planned here. Righto. So, the... Uh, Prophecy in Isaiah 61, right after the bit that Jesus uses, you know, the, the spirit of the Lord is on me to announce freedom to the captives, sight to the blind. Uh, you're going to rebuild the ancient ruins, right? So they do. They do do that. And then all the way through until the time of Jesus, you've got these two things that are coalescing into their understanding of who Messiah is going to be. So all of your Gospels, you can tell that the people listening for Jesus and watching Jesus, they have an idea who Messiah is going to be, who this saviour king is going to be. Part of that idea they're getting from the book of Isaiah. Two figures in Isaiah whose stories are entwining as they get to Jesus' day. One is the coming king of Isaiah 9 and 11, and I'd say the Emmanuel prophecy in chapter 7, right? So they're looking for a king who will be the, the new David, Who's that guy going to be? They're waiting for that. But also they've got another figure that comes out in the second half of the book who suffers and is rejected and has his beard torn out in chapter 50 and um, <clears throat> seems to be God's anointed in a different way but actually uh, does not get popular acceptance. They look like separate figures in the book of Isaiah. What's happening as time goes on is those two characters are kind of spiralling together and people are looking for who this saviour is going to be and what is he going to be like. So when baby Jesus is on the scene early in the Gospel of Luke, you've got Zechariah's song at the end of Luke chapter 1, and it's all about how the day of salvation is arriving. And you only sing that song in the first century AD if you think it has never yet come. Right? You've been waiting for Isaiah 35 for 500 years, six, 700 years, whatever it is since that text, and... You're still waiting, but you're Zechariah, and now you've seen the baby, you've had your tongue loosened, and that's the first thing you say. And then when baby Jesus is brought to the temple, it says of the aged Simeon and the aged Mary, kind of like a 
a male and female representative of the long-waiting Israel who are waiting for the redemption of Israel or looking to see the deliverance. You look at the language in 2.25 and 38. They've been waiting. Their age kind of symbolises how long the wait has been. There are, the, there are these ancient, ancient people, but they still go to the temple, still hoping to see what God's going to do. And so they really well symbolise uh, the waiting for this king and the waiting for this suffering servant. Now, in the popular imagination, the king was a lot more popular to think about than the sufferer. And one of the big things in the gospel was going to be you need to accept the sufferer as well as the king. So this is our second audience. This is the people around Jesus who are now looking at him and recognising in him the fulfilment of this chapter. And so looking at what the early church says about Jesus in relation to Isaiah 35 really kind of clarifies this. Now, um, I try and screen out academic stuff, but I accidentally let through one thing in that diagram. I'm going to comment on it. Um, if you really hate academic stuff, just like switch off and tune back in in about two minutes. Right, why am I mentioning the Septuagint? It, that's the Greek Bible. It was the influential early Bible translation. You know that the Old Testament was written almost all in Hebrew, but time came about three centuries before Christ when people didn't read and speak Hebrew anymore. Jewish people didn't read and speak Hebrew as a rule. They needed a Bible in their own language, right? And so some very, very smart Jewish people who were multilingual, they pulled out their Greek because the whole world, you know, Alexander the Great had come through, the whole world spoke Greek. So they thought, well, we'd better con convert our Bible into Greek. So this was... A huge deal. It actually really, it was like translating from Latin into the popular language, like Luther did and like Tyndale did and so forth. You can see how critical it is if no one has Latin anymore, right? So they did that for the Old Testament for the Jewish audience before Christ, put it into Greek, and that's the Bible that our New Testament apostles, our New Testament early church, our New Testament believers are all reading, Right? Almost every quote of the Old Testament in the New Testament depends on the way it's translated in the Greek, in the Septuagint. And it actually makes a difference. A little example is that the Hebrew in Isaiah 35.2 about the desert blooming doesn't mention the Jordan, but the Greek does. And you look in early church preaching and teaching about this passage, and they'll say, hey, look, see, uh, God takes his... He sort of makes the desert of the Jordan flourish, and we can see that fulfilled in John the Baptist. So that translation actually proves to be an important link, just the same way as if, if the NIV or the RSV or the NASB it was with Melissa, if that's been your going version for two, three, four decades, that's your front-page understanding of the Word of God. That's your front-page understanding of what it says. So when Christians of the early church, when they read their Bibles, they not only had that reference to the Jordan in verse 2, but when they read the word Kyrios, Lord, in verse 2, right, they could very readily think of Lord as Jesus. And that's really one reason, I think, why um, the Lord's name is capitalised as Lord in our translations even today in the Old Testament. And then, of course... Uh, they would read on to verse 5, and this is really the core of the chapter, verses 5 and 6. The blind eyes will open, the deaf ears will hear. This is the Net Bible. The lame will leap like a deer, the mute tongue shout for joy, for water will flow in the desert and streams in the wilderness. So 
you might remember a spot there where John the Baptist is already in prison. This is in uh, Matthew 11 and uh, Luke chapter 7. Uh, And this is actually in that liturgy I discovered that made sense, Matthew 11. In Matthew 11, some disciples come from John the Baptist on his behalf and they say, so are you the guy we're waiting for you? Are you the Messiah or did we misread that and we need to look for someone else? Could be a little offended, but, you know, that's their question. John's sitting back there in prison having some doubts. And Jesus says, oh, well, I don't need to say anything. Just look and see what's happening. You know, the blind see and the deaf hear and the lame walk and the dead are raised and lepers are cleansed and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And that last part comes from Isaiah 61 instead of Isaiah 35. Most of it is from these two verses in Isaiah 35. So Jesus says to John's representatives, I don't really need to um, kind of announce my own importance. I'll just let my actions do the talking. Uh, you recognise what's going on. Once you see what, what I've done, you, you know where this, you know your scripture, you know. It, all, it can just be by implication. They recognise it. And so isn't it interesting, you go to a different gospel, probably the earliest of the gospels, Mark, and the last thing Jesus does before he arrives in Jerusalem, where he's been headed his whole ministry, in a, in a sense, that's been the grand destination, the last thing he does is to heal blind Bartimaeus down there in Jericho and What does Bartimaeus do? He joins the troop and they all head off for Jerusalem. So the destination of Jesus' ministry is Jerusalem, just the way the destination of this whole chapter is Jerusalem. And along the way, kind of in train, Jesus leads the formerly blind and the formerly deaf and the formerly lame. They're all following and they walk up to Jerusalem. So it's like Isaiah 35 in reenactment and true of a lot of other Old Testament messianic passages as well so a lot of preaching a lot of early christian teaching surrounded isaiah 35 and yet even they could recognize that this idyllic picture this kind of uh, utopian aspect of isaiah 35 was not present experience and this is the bit that i was struggling a bit as i came to it so i was starting to wonder well um where is the kind of feeling of utopia? <laughs> like, where, where is the, uh, the joy in place of sorrow? Not, not in a partial sense. Like, we all have kind of some joy and some sorrow in our lives. But you read to verse 10 and you sort of think, that's all joy and no sorrow. That's all joy and no sighing. So where is that? And the, you, do the, you do the work because you, you do cotton on to things, don't you, that other people tell you. And one of the good things was my, my favourite church father is Augustine because he's... I have a trio of people that I, I will always read on any topic from church history. I will always read Augustine, I will always read Calvin, I will always read Luther because anything they say is worth listening to, um, even if it's spiky, right? It will always be worth listening to. And so Augustine and another writer I was reading said this was increasingly the case... Um, In his early years when he wrote about the good life, he thought, well, the good life can be accessed through wisdom. You cultivate wisdom and you increasingly enjoy the good life. And this writer said as he got older, maybe older and wiser himself, he he would increasingly say, uh, no, the good life is available only in the new creation. We actually don't get to enjoy it now because we never get free of the groaning and the sighing. 
And so that little synopsis of Augustine's thought just sort of reminded me the ultimate fulfilment of this passage, the fulfilment where the joy and the singing and celebration completely replaces the groaning and the sighing, is not our present situation. If we're not feeling it, it's because we're not in it. <laughs> That's not where we live. Now, we need a balance there, and so my funny distorted sine wave is really supposed to say that. So the end of this passage, the final fulfilment, a couple of verses came to mind in my reading. One has a great kicking word in it. Acts 3.21 talks about the restoration, the time of restoration. Uh, it's a great Greek word, it's a great English word, and I just sort of think, wow, that's a great one-word synopsis of what we're waiting for here, what Isaiah 35 is all about. We're waiting for restoration, full restoration in every way. And Romans 8, 18 to 25, 26 talks about the groaning and the sighing and contrasts that with the glory that is going to come and says that glory to come is worth waiting for. So very topical what Paul has to say in that spot. And I found a connection there because, uh, and one more bit of, you know, egghead stuff. I want to teach you one Greek word, okay? One Greek word. It's a little bit small there. It sounds like this, stenagmos, stenagmos. And it's often translated groaning in Romans 8.26, but I'd like to translate it sighing, and I can take you to a dictionary that will do that, so I can prove it. But I think sighing in some ways... Uh, we st a lot of our problems are still first world problems here, right? So I always think when we start feeling sorry for ourselves, we just need to turn on the telly for a little bit and watch someone's house being bombed around their ears or whatever, and then you get some perspective and you sort of realise, for most of us, most of our problems are modest. Now I know that for all of you, that, that's not always the case. Some problems in the first world can be third world scale. Right? They, can, they can be massive. You can lose people. Right? I know that. So sometimes it's groaning when it's on that scale. Deep groans when it's a deep loss, when it's a deep suffering. Um, other times it's just the sighing that uh, you know you're not living the idyllic life. You know that you're not living in utopia. The guy at work who's borne a lot of kind of grief over recent years... And sometimes I'll watch him walk around and he's just sighing, just sighs all the time. He doesn't know he's doing it, I'm sure. But that's just how weighty life has been. He's just born a lot and when he walks, he unconsciously sighs. That's stenagmos. It's the last word in the Greek version of Isaiah 35. It's the final word, stenagmos, sighing. So what we're looking forward to is when the stenagmos is finished, but that's not where we live. So how can a passage about the ultimate restoration, how can a passage about the restored future, the banishing of every tear, because Revelation really is looking back to this when it talks about no more tears, no more crying, any more pain, this and a couple of other texts. Uh, if we're looking forward to that, how can we get encouragement in this Advent today while stenagmos is still part of our lives? Where's the encouragement in that? I think we look in two directions, right? We look backwards as well as forwards, and between them we can get some perspective on where we are. So we look backwards to the advent of Christ, and that's why the dip on the diagram is not 
as low as the other dips. We have spiritual riches that they didn't have when they were waiting in, in, in exile in Babylon for rescue, which was, it's the lowest point on my diagram because, in a sense, for the people of God, it was just about the lowest point there was. They were in complete crisis. Not only had they been traumatised and bereaved and lost, lost their nation, lost their independence, living in refugee camps, lost nearly everything, but spiritually they didn't know where they stood. They didn't even know if God loved them anymore. You read, read through Lamentations to believe that, and then the final verse says, so is that it, God, or are you done with us? That's the brown paraphrase. That's, that's how Lamentation ends. Is this over? It's like one of those really difficult marital conversations you could have where you're actually not sure if it can survive. That's how Lamentations ends. That's how they felt in the exile. So that's a low, low. The biblical story doesn't stop there, thank goodness. It comes out, but that's a low, low. And then the people of Jesus, Judea, they were back under occupation again. They were enjoying being in the promised land, but they had no king, they had no freedom, they had no independence. They did what they did by the permission of the Caesars and the governors, and there were soldiers on the street corners. And there were lots of things that told them they still were not free. And lots of reasons why there was groaning in their life and not joy. It wasn't as bad, but it was still fairly bad, and they were still waiting for the redemption of Israel. So our groaning is never as bad as that, right? We have been brought into a place where we already enjoy some of the privileges of the kingdom. So Ephesians chapter 1 says we, we're already kind of brought into the kingdom. Another place it says we're already in the beloved. Um, you know, we're in the fellowship of the saints. There are lots of privileges that we have that weren't available before the cross and before Pentecost. So our stenagmos, our groaning, is never from as bad a place when we're in Christ, Right? We're not alienated from God. We're not lost. Our lives are not without purpose. We're not without value. I don't care if we're missing an arm and a leg or an eye or if you know, we've had a bad ding on the head and we've lost some of our IQ. Uh, we're never without significance in the kingdom of God. There's a place in the body of Christ for everyone who will. A role and a function and a value. Right. So we are free from despising ourselves we have the ability to be free from guilt about the past. We have a wealth of riches that we kind of, we're a bit like misers sometimes. We keep it in the cupboard, but we don't take it out and enjoy it, right? So there's a whole wealth of things that we really enjoy, but there is still the groaning as well. So I'm actually a lot more peace, at peace with this chapter now that I realise that, oh, we're actually not on the final peak. We are actually in the last trough. It's not as low, but there's a trough there between... Advents, right? Uh, between the arrival of Christ and the new creation, there are some things about that that are low. There are reasons that we'll have to groan, but we look back to see what Christ achieved to get the encouragement to realise what we have that we would not have if we were um, pining, waiting Jews in Judea, watching for when God was going to do something. But then we also get to look forward to the final fulfilment and realise, and this is what Revelation kind of expounds for us at the end, what it will be like to have every tear taken away and every reason to sigh removed. So that's, I think, what can encourage us at Advent, 
to look back to fulfillment number two when Christ came and then look forward to fulfillment number three. And Paul says, when you've really got your eye on the prize, when you really understand what the new creation, what the restoration is all about, then you know how to wait through the groaning because it's worth waiting for, the groaning and the sighing. So I hope this Christmas brings for you um, some things besides groans and sighs because there is joy as well, right? Um, and things are getting better in our kind of wider situation. Um, but let's not be surprised by the sighs. They're actually a part of our present situation. But in Christ, there is always encouragement and always joy despite that. Uh, let me close this in prayer and then I'll invite the music team back up. Well, Lord, sometimes we have to come to terms with where we live right now and sometimes we have to come to terms with being in the land where sighs and groans and loss and pain can be familiar. At the same time, Lord, let's not live like paupers sitting on a treasure chest. All the things that the, the arrival of Christ into the world, God with us, all that that means and all that that meant from the very first day, Lord, let us appropriate that. Let Christmas encourage us to open up the treasure chest and reappropriate our justification, our forgiveness and our hope. I pray that would be true for everyone here this morning. Amen.